James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This passage tells us that wealth is dangerous. That the empty allure of money is something that we should be wary of. In fact, it's one of the things that Jesus brought up most frequently in his ministry. He has some of those very famous sayings that maybe you remember. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will despise the one and be devoted to the other. He says, no one can love both God and money. And Jesus isn't the only one who says it. It comes up all throughout Scripture. Paul, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and that some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And those warnings are not simply warnings for the people out there. Those aren't just warnings for the world at large. Those are warnings for the church as well. We've seen that the church often falls into these traps. Now, we all know those obvious cases. We all know those glaring examples. I remember a few years ago reading about this megachurch pastor who decided to ask his predominantly low-income congregation for a special ministry gift. And what was the gift? Oh, just $65 million to buy a luxury private jet. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head, but who's to say a, a pastor doesn't need a bed in his airplane? Now that's an extreme example, right? We, We've, we've seen that kind of stuff, but, but I think if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you have also seen greed in the local congregation. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you have seen how wealth is a trap in any context where there are people worshiping. This passage, it's not simply for shooting down the, the millionaires and the billionaires. It's not just for uh, re talking about those Christian celebrities, but it's talking to us. It's talking to everybody. James is warning us of the ever-present danger 
that the pursuit of wealth poses to our hearts. That the danger it poses to our hearts, but also to the lives of other people. And so this morning, as we study these verses, I want us to look at three things. I want us to see the freedom of our true treasure, the injustice of our worldly treasure, and the punishment that comes when we live our lives seeking the wrong one. So let's begin by talking about the freedom of our true treasure. This passage, it opens up with some really vivid language. Listen to it with me. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. I think you can click and find a Bible on there reading from the NIV. But James starts off by saying, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming to you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You can picture that, right? If you just close your eyes, you can see the image of these decaying piles of metal, of these clothes that are falling apart because they have been eaten by insects, by moths, by vermin. James didn't choose those pictures by coincidence. They're pretty familiar, actually. If you're, they remind you, if you're familiar with Scripture, of some of Jesus' teachings. Some of his most famous words, in fact, in his most famous sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also teaches about money. And he says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The picture that Jesus paints in the Sermon on the Mount, and the picture that James seems to be drawing from here in our passage, is this contrast. It's the contrast between something that lasts forever, Something that is eternal, something that is unshakable, something that is reliable. It is the eternal treasure of the kingdom of God. And then on the other hand, there is this picture of something that is certainly doomed. The money, the power, the reputation, the small kingdoms that we try to build that, like our lives, fade away like a breath. And Jesus wraps up his teaching by saying, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And it's true, isn't it? The things that we value most, those are the things that get our attention. Those are the things that get our time. Those are the things that... that draw our anxieties that become the source of our hope. 
So we need to start off by asking, in what way might money have a grip on our hearts? We need to start with that question, right? We need to start there because, let's be honest, this is one of those passages that most of us will just breeze right by when we read it. We will read this and we will move on without really feeling a whole lot of conviction. Last time I checked, we don't have a lot of millionaires in our congregation. And the accusation that we are living in luxury and self-indulgence well, that seems like something we can kind of ignore because we can go online and we can see pictures of Tom Brady's mansion. <laughs> we can read about Jeff Bezos and his billions of dollars. And meanwhile, we're just waiting for that relief check to come. It's hard to believe that we are the ones at fault here. It's hard to believe we are the people James has in mind. But when you consider Jesus's words, that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Well, that reminds us that you don't have to have a lot of money to be controlled by it. Right? You don't have to have money to be controlled by money. What matters is what your heart treasures. So what do you treasure? How do you know what you treasure? Well, let's think about treasure for a second. Think about the last heist movie that you saw. The one I'm thinking about is Ocean's Eleven. Now look, I know we got a wide range of people in our congregation now. When I think Ocean's Eleven, I think George Clooney. I know some of you think about Frank Sinatra. I've never seen that one. <laughs> So I'm talking about the, the George Clooney one, the, the, the one where it's all about these, these guys planning a bank heist to steal millions of dollars from this casino. Do you remember all the crazy levels of protection that they have around that money? The different guards, the alarm systems, the safes, the security that they have protecting it. Or how much time Danny Ocean spends planning how he can make that money his. Obsessing about it, thinking about it, years while he's in prison. Plotting how to get it, recruiting the team so that he can make it his own. And then of course at the end of the movie, how devastated the owner of the casino is once it's gone. How he's furious, how he determines that he will stop at nothing to get that money back. Even long after the movie has, has ended, he's still in pursuit. Now, why do they do that? Well, because money is more than dollars, right? Money represents our hope. Money represents our future, our security. And so when we have a lot of it, we think, well, as long as I have this, I don't need to worry about tomorrow. This will keep me safe. This will ensure my future. And when we don't have it, well, we plot 
And we plan, and we worry, and we strive, and sometimes we'll do anything to get it. Any way we can. I'm reminded of that prayer in Proverbs, where it says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. If money resides at the center of our lives, it turns us from God. Whether we have a little, whether we have none, or whether we have a lot. But Scripture does point us to the solution. Particularly the author of Hebrews, when he says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. And listen to this. He says, Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Do you understand what he's saying there? Do you hear that? He is saying that the antidote to loving money, the antidote to having this worldly treasure at the center of our lives is actually to trust in God. To realize that our only treasure is Christ. That He is our future. That He is our hope. God is the one who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But money, it definitely will. Look, we shouldn't need any Bible verses right now to prove this. We should know that our hope cannot be in our wealth right now. In the past few weeks, what has happened? In the past few weeks, our economy has collapsed. We have gone from record unemployment to having a higher unemployment rate than in the Great Depression in just a few weeks. If your hopes were set on a paycheck or a savings account, well, you have likely already been forsaken. But the antidote to our anxieties, to our fears, to our greed, to our self-reliance, the way that we find freedom from those things is to place our hope in the living God, the one who will never leave us, the one who promised he won't forsake us. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes. Amen. Amen. When Jesus says, lay up your treasure in heaven, he means that our Father in heaven is the only one who can be our treasure. That God and his kingdom has to be what we value first, what we long for, what we obsess over, what we trust in for our future. True treasure brings freedom with it. That's the first point. The second thing I want to talk about is the injustice of our worldly treasure. 
God shows us a piece of his heart in the next verses. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not oppressing you, who was not opposing you. God is a God of justice. Actually, that doesn't really put it strongly enough. God is justice. The only way that we know what justice is, is because of God. It's because he has written his law on our hearts so that we have any concept of the difference between right and wrong. Justice exists because the world was created by God. Because justice is a fundamental attribute of the God who created this world. Think about it. When God reveals himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, remember that story? He passes by Moses and he declares his name. Who does God say that he is? He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, yet he will by no means clear the guilty. He lets us know that he is not a God who will excuse the guilty. And he's told us that if we are his people, in the church, if we belong to him, if he is our treasure, like we have been talking about, if he's at the center of our lives, then our lives, our hearts, should reflect his heart. The prophet Micah, he says, what does the Lord require of you? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. Yes. And to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Our God is a God of justice. That means... Injustice angers him, and it should anger us as well. Injustice angers God, and it should anger us as well. But most of the time, we are so concerned with our own lives that we ignore the impact we have on others, especially when it comes to money. 
especially when we're talking about issues surrounding how we use our resources, right? That's the flow of this passage, isn't it? James isn't just mad at people who are rich. He's not mad that they have wealth. It's not simply that they've amassed wealth, but that in doing so, they have oppressed and they have harmed other people. They have gotten to the top by pushing others down. Specifically, he says, they haven't been paying fair wages. The people who mow their fields and harvest their crops aren't being paid fairly. And he goes on to even put it this way. He says, they have murdered the innocent in their pursuit of comfort. Now again, that's one of those accusations that we read and we say, yeah, those evil rich people, they're the worst. But this is a message for us, remember. You might say, well, I don't murder people. <laughs> I don't murder people to get what I want. But do you know that in our day and age, economic injustice, it's a part of the system. It's a part of the system that we are living in. And that means none of us are innocent. I read this week that right now Amazon is making record profits. It makes sense. We're all home. We're stuck. We're shopping online. People are, are, are clicking and their, their orders are going through the roof. But I also read at least seven of their workers have died from COVID-19. And they're refusing to report how many people are sick. Now, we may not have malicious thoughts in our head when we're sitting down at our computer or on our phone clicking that order button. When we say, I got to get this. I know it's a pandemic, but you know, I need this shower curtain in the next week at least. But when we click that button, there is another human being on the other side who has to get up and get dressed and, and go to work in a warehouse filled with other people and put themselves at risk for that choice that you made. And let's just forget about quarantine. Let's forget about COVID-19 for a second. Let's just think about some of the things that we own. What about those pants you're wearing? The ones you got on sale for $9.99? Why are they so cheap? What were the conditions that allowed them to come to you at such a low price? Or that phone in your hand or in your pocket? How'd you get that? Or the coffee you drank this morning? How'd it get to you? What thought have you given to the people who are harvesting for you? Have you given them any thought? When you start to think about it, you realize that these accusations 
that James is making against those people, it's a lot closer to home than you might have thought. We're not innocent of these charges. We are all guilty of injustice and oppression. And God tells us that he hates those things. And if that's true, if we are the oppressors, what's going to happen to us when we finally come face to face with a holy and righteous God? What's going to happen when we come face to face with a God who is justice and who promises that he will not let the guilty go unpunished? What then? Well, that brings us to the third point. The punishment that comes when we live for the wrong treasure. None of us are innocent. A while back, I had a chance to go to a mosque with my Muslim neighbor. It was a part of a trade that didn't totally pan out for me in the end. Um, but when I went to the service... The preacher there had a message that, in a lot of ways, was similar to this one. He was preaching shortly after the death of Trayvon Martin. Believe it or not, I looked it up this week. That was eight years ago. It's amazing to think that since just last week, something very similar took place. Maybe that's why this story came to my mind, but in that sermon, the, this preacher was talking about injustice, not just economic, but all kinds, saying a lot of what I've been saying, that we are all oppressors, that we are all guilty. And that means, as moral people, we are called to fight for justice, to work for it. And if you don't, he reminded the crowd that then justice is coming for you. And he kept repeating this phrase to make his point. He said, Allah has a sword for the oppressor. Allah has a sword for the oppressor. And so he encouraged his people to go and be forces for justice. So that when they face God someday, the scales would balance out in their favor. But that's the point where our faiths diverge. Because that's not really justice, is it? For justice to happen, there can be no balancing of the scales. Because God is perfect. God is good. And if he is good, he must eradicate evil. He can't just let us off the hook for murder because we've done enough good things to balance it out. Good deeds don't make up for bad ones. Scripture tells us that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And God says, He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. 
But here at the end of our passage, the glory of the gospel peeks through for us. It's in verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one. That's a brutal accusation. That's hard to hear. You have killed, you have condemned, you have murdered the innocent one. But God, in his amazing grace, has also made that injustice the hope of our salvation. See, the gospel message is this. That rather than letting us die for our crimes like we deserve, God the Son took on flesh. And he took the punishment that we deserved. Jesus Christ is the true innocent one who was condemned and murdered. And he did that so that we could be made righteous. Scripture says that Jesus died on the cross, and after he died, they stuck a spear into his side. And blood and water flowed out. It was proof that he was dead. That the eternal God had given his life for his people. See, God does indeed have a sword for the oppressor. But the gospel message is that he has plunged it into Jesus' side. And when we come to him in faith, our sins are forgiven. Yes. Our guilt is paid. Amen. On the cross, mercy is given, but so is justice. So how do we respond to that? As we wrap up right here, how, how do we react? Well, there's a couple things that I think have to be true for us if we really are followers of Christ. The first is what God says, what James says in the beginning. We need to weep and wail. When we see our sin, we need to understand that our sin is no small thing. God hates it. It cost our Savior everything to redeem us from it. And we need to repent. We need to repent of the ways that we are overly trusting in our money, the way that we are thoughtlessly using it. We need to come to, before God and we need to repent not just of our individual actions, our individual choices, but we need to ask his forgiveness for the ways we participate in a broken system. The ways that we allow injustice to continue. The way we contribute. And we need to pray that God would give us a heart like his. A heart that longs for justice. 
That he would give us eyes to see how we can make an impact, what we need to do differently. That he would give us hearts where we would fight, where we would advocate on behalf of the people who cannot fight for themselves. We need to weep and wail. And secondly, we need to recognize that our God, this powerful, almighty, holy, righteous God of justice, when he came to earth, he did not come as a king. He didn't come first as a conqueror. But he became one of the oppressed. Our God identifies with those who suffer. And we should too. And I want to add here, if you are someone who has been the recipient of injustice, if you feel like you are the one right now crying out in the field and no one hears you and you are being ignored and overlooked, I want you to hear today, Jesus hears you. He sees you. And he has promised that he is going to come again one day and he will bring the justice you deserve. He will come again and he will set things back the way that they are meant to be. When that moment comes, the only way any of us will be safe is if he is the treasure in our hearts. If he is the one that we are trusting in for our hope and for our future. And so as we wrap up right now, I just want to invite us to take a moment and come before Jesus. Examine our lives. I want you to ask him a few questions. Ask him, what have you been trusting in? What really is my treasure today? Ask him, where have you ignored injustice around you? And finally, ask him, what does true repentance look like in your life? What needs to change to follow him? Let's just take a few moments in silent reflection. And after a little while, Pastor Mason will come and close us. Let's pray.